Well, welcome. Glad you're jumping in, joining us for New Year's Eve. Uh, hopefully you had a great Christmas, enjoying the celebrations and getting some presents from Santa and getting some good food, time with family, whatever Christmas Eve looked like for you. If you're joining us for the first time in this way, so glad that you're joining us. I'm Ethan, one of the pastors here. Love to hear from you. So you can feel free to email the church, email me. Love to be able to kind of know who's watching uh, and tuning in. As we look forward to this next year, this is one of my favorite times of year. I love New Year's. I get so excited. I get so dreamy. I'm a little bit of an optimist, a little bit of a dreamer, a little bit of a wanderer. I like goals. I like setting goals. And I'm always around this time of year, uh, around 2022, I felt it, 2021, I felt it. I'm like, this is going to be the year. This is going to be the year that I'm just going to get after it and get my life all figured out. And eventually, I find that it does not take long uh, for me to lose my New Year's resolutions, to lose my steam, to lose focus in the midst of the new year. But I love this time of year. And some New Year's resolutions, I don't know if you're a New Year's resolution person or not, but New Year's resolutions that I saw for this year, uh, I thought I'd share a few with you that I'm seeing go around. These are real people who made these real New Year's resolutions. Somebody said, I want to read more or at least turn on the subtitles on my TV, right? Uh, someone else said this, that I want to belt out every Taylor Swift song that I hear with no shame which I would say there might be, there should be maybe a little bit of shame with that. I don't know. Uh, the next one that I found was, I'm going to stop getting my news from Twitter this year. Not a bad idea. But they said this, I'm going to try Facebook instead. And then the last one, I think all of us should, should try this year. This is a great New Year's resolution, is to stop drinking orange juice after I've already brushed my teeth, right? New Year's resolutions, they're fun. Goals are fun as we think about it. But as I was thinking about this year and thinking about uh, what we should look at as we run into this next year, as we kind of reflect back on this past year, it made me ask a different question this time of year. It, it, it made me ask this question, and I wonder if we just look at this question today as we look at First uh, Timothy today. So if you got a Bible, First Timothy chapter 6, it made me ask this question. What constitutes a well-lived year? What constitutes a well-lived year? year? Is it getting through my to-do list? Is it checking every box off? Is it buying something new or cool or fancy toy? Is it dropping a couple pounds? Is it somehow improving my mental health just a little bit more? Is it getting uh, a little bit of my finances in order? What constitutes a well-lived year? Or is it something more than just th those things? And so as we look at this, I just want to invite us for a moment to pray together. So if you would, where, where you're at, if you would just uh, maybe close your eyes, get in a space where you can focus, because Lord, I'm asking that you would speak to us. As we look back over this past year, as we look ahead towards this next year, Jesus, we need to hear from you. And I'd invite you just in the moment where you're at, to just take, a, just take a brief moment to reflect back over this past year with the Lord. Look at some of the good parts. Look at some of the bad. Maybe there's loss, hurt, pain. Maybe there's things to celebrate, heartaches to grieve. Maybe just pause this video for just a moment right where you are to just take a minute to reflect with God over this past year. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us when we rush by, when we look too far ahead and we miss what you've done and what you're doing. Lord, I pray that as we go into 2024, that this would be the year that we trust you more and more with our life. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, 
the it was a midsummer's day. We had been planning for a journey. Me and several of my cousins and my siblings had been planning for this journey. Uh, that I was a junior in high school, and, I, and just in case I preached about this sometime, we took a picture for it, right? And so that's me in the center. This is my uh, cousins on the side and my siblings over here. And we planned on going on this journey my junior year of high school in the summer. It was around June, July time. And uh, the journey was simply to do this. My dad was going to drop us off about 35 minutes from our house. And my burden was to take a ring that was uh, chained around my neck, and I was kind of leading this expedition, this adventure with uh, my comrades here, with my fellowship, right? And as we were going on this journey back home, we were then, the whole goal was to throw the ring into the, my parents' pool, right? We were trying to think of Lord of the Rings and Mordor, and we, I was big into that at the time and still love it to this day. And so we just wanted to reenact a journey, an adventure of our own. And so we started moving along on this thing. And man, we, as we were, my dad dropped us off. I threw on my pack and and on my pack, I don't know if you can see this from really the picture, but we we didn't have tons of stuff that we were like prepared for this journey with. And so we didn't have uh, water planned all that well. We just threw a bunch of water bottles and all my pack was was just the water that we had. And then I carried jugs on the side. I, I attached jugs to my backpack somehow. And so I had like a 50, 60 pound bag of just water. And uh, everybody else kind of divided everything among themselves. And so we set off. My dad dropped us off. It's about 7, 30, 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's a beautiful summer day, right? It's nice and cool. Uh, there's a gentle breeze. But the creek that we were to follow, we were going to follow this creek, then go to our uh, an official campsite. This creek was going to lead us to this official campsite that would then we'd stay there, sleep there, and then go follow the railroad the next morning. And these railroad tracks ran right behind my house. And so it was going to take us about a day and a half to two days to complete this rigorous journey, right? And so as we embarked on it, we're enjoying it, enjoying the nice gentle breeze, enjoying the water, having great conversation, uh, thinking about all the adventures that we were going to have ahead of us. And so we set off. And as we're setting off, my pack is, it's heavy, right? It's, it's not... Uh, it's not a light pack by any means. And so uh, as we're uh, walking, I start to get exhausted. I start to get tired quicker than maybe I thought. And so we stop for lunch. And as we stop for lunch, we have bread and different uh, granola and different things like that. Maybe some biscuits. I forget all of what we brought, but we kind of started eating. It was something simple. And, and there were these cotton trees that we ate by. So we found kind of this bridge uh, that was near the creek and and we sat, and these cotton trees just kind of let the cotton fall. So it almost looked like snow in the middle of summer. It was kind of, it was just this beautiful scene, and we're exhausted and we're tired, but it's been a great morning so far. And I realized, man, my pack, I, I don't want to put that thing back on again, right? Like, I'm, I'm getting tired. We're drinking water, but we're not drinking water quick enough, you know? And so I, I feel, um, just out of curiosity, I lift my cousin's bag. And I'm like, man, how much does he have in here? And so I lift it up, and, and after lifting it, I'm like, hey, uh, what do you have in here? And I, I'm not kidding you. The first word that he said was, I, I packed my pillow in there. I'm like, I'm carrying 50, 60 pounds of water on my back, some that you're enjoying right now, and all you got is a pillow in your bag, right? He had other things in there as well, but it felt so much lighter, and I was like so frustrated, and so we started bickering with each other. We started fighting on the journey that we were supposed to be in together. We started arguing a little bit back and forth, kind of joking around with each other. He's like, well, you wanted to be the hero and carry all the water, so I'm letting you, right? And and I'm like, well, I mean, I'm my back hurts. I'm I'm exhausted. You shouldn't even be tired, even remotely. You should be feeling great. And we kind of laugh about it and, and put our packs back on and, and keep going on the journey. And as we keep going, we get to this part uh, right along the creek that is all overgrown. And it's like this greenery that's overgrown and just gnarly. Well, we came, like I said, we weren't super prepared, but we were kind of prepared. And so I brought a, a machete with me. 
and we we started going and we started creating our own trail. None of this was like an official trail. This was a trail of our own making. And so we start taking on this trail. And as we're moving through this greenery, all of a sudden, a little bit, the farther we get into it, my my hands just start burning. They just start lighting up like fire, like needles are going in them. And then my legs start to feel it and I start to feel itchy all over my body, right? And we realize it's like these needly thistle things that we're walking through. And as I'm making the trail with my machete, I get exhausted to a point where I'm like, guys, somebody else has got to take the lead on this. And so they take the lead and we start swapping out because the thistles are just burning us, lighting us up like needles on our skin. And so we keep switching out. Finally, we get to the great idea. We're like, Let, we got to get through this. This is as far as the eye could see. We didn't know when we were getting out of this. We're like, okay, some parts were like over our head and stuff. And so finally, we just get the idea. Let's just make a run for it, which was a terrible idea. It hurt way worse. So we got back to the machete and we just started taking turns again. Finally, we get to this road. And as we look up on this road, we get on the road and we just kind of follow the road for a little bit. And it's going following the creek. We got out of the thistles. We fleed from them. We ran out of them. And, and as we're following this road, seeing the creek, all of a sudden something happens that we didn't expect. I knew I didn't expect. I kind of mapped this whole thing out, was kind of the leader in this whole expedition. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a fork in the creek. And they asked me, the, the whole crew, the whole crew asked me, they're like, where are we supposed to go? What direction are we supposed to go? And I look at our map that we had, and I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure which direction. There's no fork in the creek, at least not at this part that I think we're at. And so with boldness, I'm looking at the map, and I just go, we need to go left. And, and they're like, all right, sounds good. And so we go left. And, and as we go left, we walk for another two hours. It's about seven o'clock at night. And you can just tell we're supposed to be at the campsite, but there's no campsite in, in sight. And so this was two hours of us already walking. We're like, I think we took a wrong turn <laughs> and we can't go back. I'm t we're way too exhausted to go back. And so I, I bring everybody together and I said, you know what, guys, this, the, the testing right now, is what shows us what we're made of, right? It shows us what we're made for. And as I looked at all of them in the eyes and we're, we're kind of exhausted from a full day, we took a wrong turn, we, it's led us so far off course. I said, you know what we're made of? We're not made for this, right? And so I said, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna call my dad, we're gonna have him pick up a pizza, pick us up, and then they're gonna drive us back home and we're gonna get in the pool and just relax because I'm done with this thing, right? This journey has not gone at all of what we expected. It got hard. We've lost focus. We followed off the trail. And that's exactly what we did. We, we got pizza. It was the best pizza I think I've ever had in my entire life. And we went home. It's amazing. If you go on a journey, sometimes it can be tough to keep your focus on the journey. And life is a little bit of a journey. And this fall, if you were with us at all, we walked through the book of Ephesians, which Paul wrote uh, to this church in Ephesus. And he sent this pastor there, this young pastor, his name was Timothy. And Timothy was pastoring there. And it's just a couple years later that he writes this letter to 1 Timothy. It's just a couple years after. And the reason he's writing is because the church in Ephesus had these false teachers that had come in and influenced the, the church and led them and misdirected them. And the church had lost focus. It had misaligned itself. And how true is that for us today? That the thistles of this world, the weight that we carry on our backs, the misreading of maps, and the can misalign and distract our focus in the journey of following towards Jesus. And so Paul, what he does at the end of his letter to Timothy is he leaves them this challenge that I think this challenge is the challenge that God wants to leave for us as we look back on 23 and look forward to 24. It's this. He says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. That word flee there, it's where we get the, the Greek word is where we get the word fugitive. It's, it's like run as if somebody's coming after you. Get out of there, avoid it, escape, get out. Don't hang around the thistles, they're gonna burn you. So get out as quick as you can. What's he saying though to flee from? Well, we gotta go back. If you go back in the chapter in verse three, he says this, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
and to godly teaching. Paul encourages Timothy to flee from these false teachers that were teaching out of sync with the way of Jesus. And this is not Paul's way that telling Timothy to go online and to take to the internet and search out and define and label all these false teachers and blast their name on social media. That's not what Paul's trying to say. Paul's trying to say, you need to look at what's going on. And he already warned the church in Ephesus about this. He warned them before he even wrote the book of Ephesians, before he ever wrote the book of First Timothy. He said in Acts 20, he said, keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What's Paul's warning? I think he's trying to tell them to flee from false teachers and false teachings. And by the way, you and I so easily can have a false teacher within us. We can have false teachings within us. That's why he says keep watch over yourselves. But not only that, we got to keep watch over the context of our community. As we journey after Jesus together, if there's beliefs and lifestyles that are out of sync and out of line with the way of Jesus, we have to watch out for each other. We keep watch over ourselves, but we keep watch out for each other. What does it look like to have a false teacher that lives within you? What's that look like? How do we know if there's false teaching within us that we're believing different things that are wrong? Paul goes back in verse 4, and he says this, They are conceited. The the false teachers, they're conceited. They understand nothing. They have unhealthy interests in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think godliness is a means to financial gain. For today, we'll say it this way, that we flee from a creeping pride, a constant combativeness, and a compulsive comfort. This creeping pride that we flee from, C.S. Lewis says this, he says, it's pride is a spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. Well, We see a lot of pride in our world today. In fact, we're encouraged to take pride in a lot of things. Take pride in your community. Take pride in your school. Take pride in our country. Take pride in our talents, our ability, our job. We take pride in who you are. Take pride in yourself, right? It's easy to see pride all around us. It's easy to see it. You can see it in other people very quickly. They're loud. They're arrogant. They're egomaniacs. They talk about how awesome and how much they love themselves, right? It's easy to see pride in others. I, I think I've been so convicted recently as, as one of the pastors here of just how sneaky and how subtle pride can be even in my own life. Pride can be so sneaky. In fact, it seeps into the cracks of my soul and it often lies dormant there for years until all of a sudden it's awakened and I see something. But pride has the ability to blind our vision of ourselves and and of God and of other people. Pride transfers the role from God, from the God of Yahweh to the God of my way. Pride is like this pedestal where I play the role of God and I look down and judge all the people below. It's sneaky though. Paul says, examine yourselves. In In 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. And he says this, test yourselves. So can we do this just, just at the beginning of 2024? Can we take a quick test, a pride test? Uh, on this pride test, pride might be creeping in if I don't obey someone unless I agree with them. Number two, pride might be creeping in if I don't serve others unless I'm sure that my service is seen. Pride might be creeping in if I have nothing left to learn because I'm the expert. Pride might be creeping in if I don't do that. That's their job. That's my wife's job. That's my kid's job. That's my co-worker's job. That's my husband's job. Pride might be creeping in. Pride might be creeping in if my mantra is always, if I were in their shoes, I would do it better. Pride might be creeping in if I stop caring about what God has to say because God always agrees with me and sounds just like me. And lastly, pride has crept in 
if I become the judge, jury, and executioner for other people's weaknesses and I'm blind to my own shortcomings and weaknesses. Can I ask you, how are how, how you doing? Pride is so sneaky and it creeps in so subtly. I was reading a book this fall called The Revolutionary Disciple and they make the point that humility must be the main characteristic of maturity for a disciple of Jesus. And if Jesus is going to show up more and more in my life and it's going to be less and less of me, humility is the thing that takes the lead. We should be known for our humility. That's not all he says. It's, it's, there's a creeping pride, but there's a constant combativeness in us. There's an unhealthy interest in controversies and debates and arguments. And these false teachers, they fed off something having to fight about. And they, they kind of enjoyed this evil energy that they got from bickering and blaming and belittling. And can I be honest with you? Even in my own brokenness, I, I like that evil energy of combativeness sometimes. I, I enjoy, I don't know if you're like me at all, but sometimes I'm like, I want a good debate. Let's go, right? And it can be something about stupid things. I enjoy kind of squabbling and stirring suspicion and arguing about some of the silliest things. Because if I can look smart and make you look stupid in the process, sometimes that's in, in my brokenness, in my flesh. Man, sometimes I, I find myself doing that and I'm like, oh, why? Why am I doing that? Because this evil energy scratches this itch in me. And, and we can get so animated about small things and big things. I'll give you an example. For me, uh, if you want to argue Marvel movies with me, I will tell you and show you why Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1 is the best Marvel movie out there, hands down, right? I'll argue with you about books, music, conspiracy theories, sermons, cultural topics, whatever you want to argue about sometimes. And, and, and for me, I need you to see it my way because I see it the right way, which means this, that you see it the wrong way, right? Have you met somebody like that? Like, come on. Have you met someone like that? You see that in our world. And maybe, maybe, maybe you see it in yourself. That there's a, there's a fight in all of us. That we like to fight. We like to find faults. And sometimes it's just to keep the friction going. Some of us, it's, it's so much so that even in our world, that if something's not wrong, then something's wrong, right? We panic. If, if there's nothing going on or no friction, we're like, well, I got to figure out something to go wrong. I got to find something wrong. You see it in the news. It's what sells in the news headlines. Combativeness sells. It's this alluring and pride is often the starting point. Humanity has, uh, from the beginning, humanity from the beginning has fought with each other, blamed, with, blamed each other, debated, disputed with each other. And Paul says in Titus, he says this, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. How are you doing at speaking evil of no one? Your coworkers, how, how are you doing at speaking evil of nobody? What about your mother-in-law? What about the rulers and authorities of our day? Could, could you say that to be true of you? Just that you're speaking evil of no one? What about quarreling? How are you doing at avoiding quarreling and not looking for a fight and being gentle and perfectly courteous? Does that describe your dinner conversation over Christmas with your crazy uncle who's got some wacky ideas that you are gentle, perfectly courteous and not looking for a fight? right? He, he's like, this combativeness, this evil energy that scratches an itch in all of us isn't just out there. It's not just other people. It's not just our world and the news and all that, but it's a heart thing. It's in all of us. And we ought to be humble enough to, to look inward and to, to recognize it. He's like this creeping pride, this constant combativeness, but he, he moves it one step farther. He says these false teachers, they think godliness is a means to financial uh, gain. 
Can I ask this? Is godliness a means to an end for you? Outside of Jesus? Is it a means to an end that you're, you're wanting to make yourself a little bit more successful? You're wanting to make yourself a little bit wealthier, a little bit wiser, a little bit gooder, a little bit more uh, comfortable? Is godliness a means to an end? Our world, we love comfort today. We deeply want to be comfortable. In fact, Americans, on average, they spend $700 to $1,500 a month on, quote, non-essentials. Between restaurants, streaming services, expensive clothes, online shopping, vacations, home renovations. In fact, in Norton, uh, they're just moved to coffee house, bean and grind. Some of us, we spend $700 a month just on coffee because that place moved in, right? We spend so much money on comfort. And in, in so doing, I think we can decrown Jesus and make comfort our new king. And that's what these false teachers were doing. Cue the words of Jesus. If anyone wants to come after me, let him indulge himself and use his riches to make thy life as comfortable as possible. <laughs> that's not what he says. He says the complete opposite. He says deny himself. Take up his cross and be following me. In another teaching of Jesus, he says, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. Maybe that needs to be the New Year's resolution this year. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Because Jesus of Nazareth is a Messiah that we follow who is born outside next to filthy animals, grew up to be a homeless man who walked around in the Middle East, became friends with sinners and tax collectors, corrected the religious folk of the day, ultimately suffered a horrible death, was mocked by his enemies, deserted by his friend, and hung on a tree naked. Using Jesus to somehow engineer and hack your life and make your life as comfortable as possible beyond your wildest dreams does not make sense with him. It doesn't make sense. Because Jesus lived his life and died his death. And if he was God in the flesh and did that to save me from my sin, my shame, my regret, then he is worth following no matter how uncomfortable I might be following him. And that's what Paul says. He, he says in verse 11, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Follow, it's like this pursuit it's, it's a bloodhound hunting after a fox. That level of intensity that we pursue, we follow the gospel path in a world of wandering ways. It's like what Paul's doing here in Timothy. He's just like revealing to Timothy the gospel path. He's revealing the gospel path. That way when the journey gets hard, the questions come. And how should I respond to this situation? What should I do in this circumstance? How do I treat this person? Where's God at in the middle of this? He's laid out a path for you already. Uh, Paul is like, Timothy, Jesus paved the gospel path for you and I to follow. What does the gospel path look like? It looks like doing the right thing, not the easy thing. It looks like living in a constant awareness of God, trusting God above all else, loving uh, everyone, even my enemies. It looks like not quitting, even when it gets difficult. It looks like being gentle, forgiving, and gracious. Jesus laid out this gospel path, but our world goes wandering on these different roads. We do the comfortable thing. We live in a constant awareness of ourselves. We trust our humanity or our fellow humans around us more than we trust God. We love those who love us. We quit if it's hard, confusing, difficult, or I don't like it. And usually we react to however we feel in the moment. Paul's like, choose the gospel path. Why? You need to choose and follow and pursue this thing like a bloodhound pursues a fox. Why? Because it is the best gift that you can give to your spouse, your kids, your company, your friends, and every relationship. The best gift that I can give is my transforming self that Jesus is making me into as I follow him on this gospel path. And I think there's a lot of followers of Christ, there's Christians, quote Christians, that are wandering aimless in our world today. 
They're wandering. They're unsure what to do and unsure where to go and how it's all going to end. And Paul seems to suggest that the Christian life isn't about wandering and panicking and running around, but it is a way more focused life. It's a way more intentional. It's narrow. It's like a sniper shot instead of a shotgun approach to life. You like aim that thing directly and you're like, that's where I'm going. It's what Jesus said. Jesus called it the narrow road. He called it the narrow gate and the narrow road in Matthew 7. It's what Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. If I fix my eyes on Jesus in God's truth, as I walk on this gospel path, I walk into God's truth. I walk into righteousness and godliness. And what that does is it, it removes this creeping pride in me. I walk into God's truth. I walk into God's heart. I walk into God's way. I look at Jesus, the life of Jesus, and I follow the gospel path. It's a beaten off the road path. It doesn't look very glamorous. In fact, oftentimes it's not. Jesus says that few people find it. But if you find it, you follow it, it is the thing that leads to life. And by the way, as you disciple under Jesus and you follow the gospel path, you pursue it like a bloodhound after a fox. All of a sudden, as you pursue it, what he does is he begins to produce it in you. So when I trust God and I follow the gospel path and I do the right thing instead of the easy thing, all of a sudden I become a person who gets more comfortable with doing the right thing. As I follow and pursue the path, he produces righteousness in me. He produces godliness in me. He produces gentleness in me. And he is the pioneer. He did it first. He blazed the trail. But then he's also the one who's going to perfect it in my soul. I'm not going to perfect it. He is. I'm not going to be perfectly loving, perfectly faithful. But Jesus, as I continue to pursue the path, he'll continue to produce it. Henry Nowen says this. He's a spiritual writer, and he says, It is you who decides to think. It is you who decides what you think, say, and do. You can think yourself into a depression. You can talk yourself into low self-esteem. And you can act yourself in a self-rejecting way. But you always have a choice to think, speak, and act in the name of God, and so move toward the light, the truth, and the life. What's Paul saying? He's saying stay on the path. Don't let your thoughts wander. Don't let your words wander. Don't let your actions wander you off the path. You stay on the path. Don't stray from it, because the beaten road is the only road that leads to life. And there's many people wandering, traveling on different roads, going on different journeys, but the gospel path is the only one that leads to life. And that's why it's, uh, Paul continues and he says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight to stay on the path. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We fight to stay on the path. What's that look like? It's to fight for an eternal perspective and a present faith to the lost. We fight, a fight, uh, we fight the fight of faith, and it didn't start with us. It didn't start with me. This great conflict was one of old in a garden with a serpent sowing seeds of distrust among God and his people. And Satan knows us and so well and will do everything he can to divide us, discourage us, distort us, and destroy us. To get us to stray off the path. And he'll do it by planting seeds of hostility, unrest, and fear. Satan, Paul I think is saying, Satan will strike you with eternity amnesia. Where all of a sudden you forget that heaven exists. You forget how the book ends. You forget that we are actually all going to die one day. Or Jesus is going to come back for his church. And he is going to right all wrongs. You forget. You're struck with uh, eternity amnesia. And he also says that Satan will sell us on a privatized version of our faith. Which is a false kind of faith. 
a so privatized and personalized version of faith that nobody, no actual person around you knows your faith. No actual person sees your faith. They'll strike you with eternity amnesia and sell you on this privatized version of faith and all of a sudden you start to live in the mundane. But Paul is calling us to live above the mundane, above the meaninglessness, above the trivial and live with a vision of heaven. He's like, live with a vision of heaven because a mom who lives with a vision of heaven as she's changing her diapers realizes that this kid is going to grow up one day in a hostile world against God. And so it causes me to change diapers differently. A, A neighbor who lives with a vision of heaven recognizes this, that the neighbors beside them who are most annoying or who are most reclusive are those who are desperately lost, lonely, looking wandering, and they get a vision of heaven for them, and what would it look like to invite them into their home, to invite them around the table? A vision of heaven for a high school student gets a vision for heaven at their lunch table, and they start to look to try and make friends and to try and somehow lead their lost friends into the gospel path. They fight the right fight, fighting the fight of faith. Even when the journey gets hard, even when the journey gets difficult, and especially when it gets difficult, when doubts start to creep in, when pain starts to happen, when suffering takes place and hurt and injustice, what Paul is saying is your faith gives a witness. Your faith, when you fight to keep the faith, when you fight to stay on the path, all of a sudden it becomes this film for other people to watch what you actually believe. And so you fight to keep the faith. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his uh, reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Jesus was the one who fought to get me on the gospel path in the beginning. Jesus fought for me in the garden of anxiety in Gethsemane. Jesus fought for me in the accusations and conviction of an unfair trial in an unjust way. Jesus fought for me in the anguish and ultimate death of the cross on Calvary. And I was worth it to Jesus for him to fight for me. It blows my mind. Jesus saw me as valuable and he was willing to suffer for me in order to save me. And one day I'm going to be with him forever. (laughs) And, And it makes me ask this question that's been very convicting for me recently is who am I fighting for? Who are you fighting for? With prayers and petitions and fervent cries. Because I need to fight to stay on the gospel path, but I need to fight for others to get on the gospel path because Ron, the best thing Ron needs is Jesus. Ron needs Jesus. Brian needs Jesus. Richard needs Jesus. Zach needs Jesus. Claire needs Jesus. And they're wandering lost around me on these different roads and they don't see the beaten road, the beaten trail that looks like nothing, that looks confusing, but they're wandering on the road of finance. They're wandering on the road of sexuality. They're wandering on the roads of relationship or careerism or whatever it is. And they're wandering on these lost roads, hoping that they lead to life, but they lead to their destruction. And do I care enough to fight for them? How do I fight for them? I stay on the gospel path and I pray for them. I show up present to them in prayer because I don't know who's praying for Brian. But I know I'm praying for Brian. I pray Brian somehow gets on the gospel path and God, could you use me? Could you not only prayerfully be present, but could you somehow position me to be present for him? Can I, as I'm mowing my lawn, could, could you have set up a time, a divine appointment for him to come over and us have a conversation or for me to go over and see him and have a conversation? 
Jesus, we get the chance to be a picture of Jesus, a present picture of Jesus. The way we fight is we pray, we, we position ourselves and let, pray that God would position us in front of these people who are lost on these wandering roads and we present not a perfect picture, but just a picture of Jesus to them as we live our lives. And this is his final charge to him in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Jesus Christ who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge to you, keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and the might forever. Amen. We commit to be faithful to the God who's overall, Jesus who took it all, and the gospel who that will ground all. God is over all. God is sovereign. He's never questioning. He's never wondering. He never feels surprised. He doesn't live with regret. God never is, feels helpless. He never feels backed into a corner. God who gives life to everything, my boss, my family members, my friends, the mosquito out in the woods, and the whale out on the ocean, the president of the United States, and the starving kid in Chad, Africa. God whose splendor is like the Son, an explosion of majesty where a burning of his brilliance in a bush is way too holy for you to wear your dirty shoes in or around. There's no one remotely like God on the planet. We can't think of a way to describe him. And God is not some old grandfather up in glory, twiddling his thumbs, sucking on hard candy, paranoid, and frantically watching the terrible things that go on down here. But God is above all things. And the beauty and the mystery is that of Jesus because that is the mystery of Christianity in a night that we celebrated last week that in a dirty stable in a cave in Bethlehem a baby boy was born whom the angels sang a wonderful Christmas message and the great news of the gospel is that the invisible all over sovereign God became visible as a man and the, this God came on our level. He showed up and the unknowable became knowable. Sovereignty came near. The supreme being came close. And the king of glory died on the battlefield of a cross to save you and to save me from my sins so that we would be with him forever. And it is that story, it's the gospel story that keeps me grounded when everybody else seems to be losing their heads. Why? Because it's spiritually healthy and spiritually humbling for you and I to recognize that every morning we wake up, we take a deep breath and go, God, I'm not the one who runs the universe. You are. It is spiritually healthy and spiritually humbling to come to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and recognize that he has come near to me. It is spiritually healthy and spiritually humbling to recognize that the God who is over all things is working his plan and we will be with him one day for sure. No doubt about it. So now I can trust God's character in whatever my circumstances, and I can trust God's story in whatever my situation. If you're familiar at all with the biblical narrative of Egypt and Pharaoh, Pharaoh's story is so fascinating to me because in Pharaoh's story, he begins to get fearful of this immigrant nation that has found themselves in Egypt's land. And this immigrant nation begins to grow underneath his nose. And as he begins to be fearful of them, he decides to enslave them. He enslaves them. He kills their baby boys. And while Pharaoh is living in his riches and glory in a palace and has statues constructed and buildings constructed in his image, Moses and Aaron come to him. And they say that God has been speaking, Pharaoh. And he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh looks at them, and it's interesting, if you've ever recalled or read the Exodus account, he looks at them and he goes, who is this Lord? 
I don't recognize this God you speak of. I don't see any other God around here. I'm the only God around here. Look out the window. There's an image. There's a huge statue built in my place. Who? What other God is going to tell me what to do? I don't see or recognize this God that you speak of. Why in the world would I obey him? I don't obey anybody. I am God. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh's heart begins to go on this journey of hardness because of his pride. And God in his grace sends these plagues as warnings, patiently trying to soften Pharaoh's heart. And yet, his heart begins to get harder and harder as water is turned to blood. Boils show up, frogs, gnats, darkness, and ultimately death. And Pharaoh becomes more and more combative, more and more of an outrageous, angry tyrant, increasing Israel's enslaved workload, treating them brutally, becoming this monstrous force, keeping them under his thumb of wrath, leaving them exhausted, leaving them hopeless and absolutely fearful. And this story of Pharaoh serves as a warning. It serves as a warning that you and I, if we're not careful, will desire the riches, the values, the power, the comfortability of Pharaoh. And at the same time, our hearts will become hardened with pride, a combative spirit, and a craving for comfort. Pharaoh went insane. He went into the ring with God 10 times and lost every single time, refusing to recognize and refusing to honor God. Paul closes and he says, Timothy. Do you know what Timothy's name means? It means one who honors God, who recognizes God. One who honors God. Jesus, when he's teaching his disciples to pray, he says, our Father in heaven, hallowed, honored, Glory be your name. And if you said yes to Jesus, you and I, we carry the name of Jesus with us. And to take the Lord's name in vain is not so much to stub your toe and say his name, right? Like, if you do that, maybe maybe stop. I don't know. But that's not what Scripture is saying. To take the Lord's name in vain is so much worse than that. It's when you and I, we carry the name and we use it wrongly. We misrepresent Jesus. We recognize who Jesus is, but we misrepresent him. We lie and we dishonor the God of truth. We live for ourselves and pretend as if we're God and we rob the King of glory for our own glory. We mistreat others and we take the name. We carry the name of Jesus in our mistreatment of them that are made, other human beings who are made in God's image. That you and I, we carry the name. So what constitutes a well-lived year? I think it's this. It's we honor God. We carry the name of Jesus, of Yahweh, into 2024. In our actions, in our hobbies, in our words, in our relationships, in our families, in our workplace, we carry the name Jesus, as if he were living his life through me. As an American, as a suburban, as a banker, as a mom, as a dad, we carry the name one moment at a time, one day at a time, one month, one year, honoring God. And he says to him, he says, Timothy, one who honors God, who carries the name, guard it. Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. We guard the name that we carry because you'll be often tempted to trade it for your own name. We guard the gospel that leads to life, this story of the gospel that leads to life, because you'll be often to substitute it for another story, one like Pharaoh's or one like a false teacher. We guard the grace that rules our hearts because we will be tempted to exchange it for a combative spirit. And so as we go from 2023 to 2024, I wonder if it's something simple. If you, if you got just, I wonder if just get a piece of paper, maybe an index card. And on that index card, I'd write three things. I'd write three words, flee, 
follow and fight. And maybe just ask yourself, take a minute after this, take a minute during this, what things do I need to flee from? Don't, don't do an exhaustive list, just do a couple. That this year, some things have been picked up along the way. You've gotten comfortable with some things. Pride has crept into your heart. Sin habits have just been allowed to be there. Unhealthy desires, attitudes, maybe there's, maybe there's things that I need to flee. Maybe really practical. Maybe there's, there's rhythms in my life that need to be changed, and they're not all bad, but how much TV do I really need to watch? How much time on social media do I need to spend? Maybe there's things I need to flee from. But don't just think about what you gotta flee from, think about what you're following towards. What is Jesus inviting you to follow him into next? Is it a, a huge step of faith? Maybe. Maybe he's asking you to move. Maybe he's asking you to commit your finances in a different way this year. Maybe he's asking you to change your job. I don't know. Maybe it's something small. Maybe it's a rhythm thing. Maybe it's a spiritual practice that you need to incorporate of fasting. Maybe hospitality, getting to know your neighbors and inviting them in. Maybe for you, it's a practice of slowing your life down a little bit, cutting things out, spending time with Jesus, making him a priority. And lastly, I want to challenge us as just a church to think, who am I going to fight for this next year? Who am I going to show up in the presence of heaven for and pray for them? Do I have a lost list? Do you have a lost list? People in your life, neighbors, friends, coworkers, I don't know. Not just everybody, somebody, pick somebody. Create a list, start it there, start it with one name. A lost list that you would take this card and it would somehow help you focus because when the journey gets hard, you put this card in front of you every single day and you remember, I'm fighting for these people, I'm praying for them, I'm praying God would position me towards them, and I'm praying that I would be a good picture towards them of Jesus. I invite you, take a minute, fill some of that out. Just a, just a couple things. Don't, don't try and overdo it. Don't try and, you, don't exhaust yourself. Just a few things. Prayerfully consider what is it God's inviting me to flee from, to follow him into next, and who am I going to fight for I invite you to, to do that maybe just after this because God, thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for fighting for me. God, I pray for those watching who didn't realize they had a God who fought for them, who went to the cross for them. God, I pray right now their eyes would be open. They'd see the beauty. They'd be reminded. They'd, they'd know your story. You love them so much to show up as a baby and to grow up as a man and die in their place. But you didn't stay dead. You're bringing us to, back to you. God, I pray that as we go on this journey, help us to stay focused. As we journey after you in this next year, Jesus, I pray you keep us focused. Don't let us get distracted. I pray, Lord, as, as simple as an index card, would somehow keep us grounded to live above the mundane, to live above the meaninglessness, to live above the noise of our world. Lord, I love you, and I thank you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.